So your instinct is that bomb is right over my head. It's about to hit us, but it could be a block away. And, and eventually we heard the explosion and the walls shook and the lights flickered and we realized we were still alive. That is absolutely incredible stress. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Today we have got a doctor in the house. We don't have to say that, but it's Dr. Amir Rush. I'm not going to get your surname right. Say your name, please. Amir Rashidian. Rashidian. There we have it. Um, he is the founder of a chiropractic center and improves health through drug-free solutions. I'm fascinated by your whole story and journey. And you recently published a, a, something called The Stress-Proof Life. And I'm curious about this, which shows readers the secret to becoming, and I love showing, showcasing secrets on this podcast, the secret to becoming the kind of person who's able to handle any amount of stress uh, on their journey to greatness. So I am probably your ideal client or patient. Welcome to the show, Amir. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. So we're coming at this from different angles, but we both work with individuals in some capacity and many of them showing symptoms of stress, whether it's through mental health stuff, which is where, where I often get my clients, uh, or, or physical health stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's very closely linked. Would you just give us maybe a little overview of your practice uh, so that the listeners understand where you're coming from? 100%. It's exactly what you said is, is our body's response to stress is where a lot of illnesses or just susceptibility to illness comes from. Uh, you've heard of people say, I caught a cold and you go, but, but there's no bacteria or viruses in cold. So why did we catch cold? And in fact, freezing weather kills bacteria, right? Why, why do we get sick? It's because that when the body is focusing its energy and strength on raising our body core temperature, uh, then all of a sudden that takes away from our strength in our immune system. So our immune system drops and we become more susceptible to catching a cold, which is why we get sick in the winter. However, you know that some people catch a summer cold. Well, then they're the ones that are probably not sleeping well. They're the ones that their bodies are tired or exhausted in certain ways or certain systems. Maybe they're burning the candle at both ends. They're pulling all-nighters. They're working too much. And now they've caught a cold it's because their immune system was allowed to decline. So stress by itself is very neutral because exercise is stress. I can go to a, a gym and lift weights and the result could be that my muscles get bigger and I get stronger and more resilient to a load on my body. But if I do it improperly, I can definitely get hurt. But the concept of lifting weights is neutral, just like gravity is a force and it's neutral. So is Fire. Fire is neutral. It can burn your hand, but it can cook your food. So is it good or is it bad? Money is a, is a force. It's a tool. It's neutral. It can fund terrorist activity or it can put your children through college. But by itself, it's not good or bad. It's how you use it. And stress, by definition, 
is that it's a force that causes change in your life. The change can be good or bad, and it depends on your ability to handle it. To respond to it, but do you think that we are more stressed than ever? You know, do you you think so? 100%, 100%. You mentioned that there's tremendous amount of psychological stress in our world right now. There's tremendous amount of physical stress in our world, mainly because we sit now much more than we used to. We're a sedentary society as a whole. And lastly, I would add a dimension to that, which is the chemical or the biochemical dimension. What we breathe in isn't as pure as what it used to be. What we drink isn't as pure and clean as was it, what it used to be. And certainly the products we put in our skin. So everything that's going into our body from a chemical standpoint is also adding to that stress. And I would also add to that that we're more disconnected than ever. Loneliness is on the rise and we seem to be, even though there's the illusion of more connectivity because we're on Facebook and we're, and we're chatting, but it's for many people replacing that human one-to-one face-to-face contact. And I think that's playing a part in how we're feeling as well. 100% I agree with you. Okay, so we need human contact. Um, so I, I want to go into your thoughts around stress and, and the book and I just want to learn for myself. I'm in business by myself and uh, that there's so much stress around. I'm choosing mostly to handle it in ways that are useful for me. And sometimes I don't get it right. Sometimes I don't get all kind of parts of the equation right, such as food, moving. I can be totally guilty of being hunched over my laptop for hours on end because I've got a deadline or I've got something I want to create. Um, but I'm learning more and more about the both the, 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 the head, the kind of psychological and the body connection. I know it makes sense and it's connected to our body. But I think my, my survival strategy through trauma was to educate myself. And if my head was right, then I could survive anything. And it's been an interesting process to realize that my body still remembers things in different ways than my head does, right? Absolutely. So um, interesting process. So, but before we go there, I want to get to know you, Amir. I want to hear a little bit about your story, which you hinted at uh, before we uh, started recording. Um, Give us a little sense of where did you grow up? I mean, do you think your, your, your lifestyle kind of built, were you taught how to handle stress, I guess, growing up? What was the context like for you? You know, I, I think children can, can handle stress sometimes a bit better than adults because when, when we may encounter something, we have an accumulated load of everything that happened before that that also adds to that experience. So um, I grew up in Iran. And, uh, you know, uh, I was five years old when the revolution started. I remember being in the backseat of my dad's car and we came around the corner on a busy city street and there was rioting and fighting and tear gas and and batons and and things flying. And uh, I actually, uh, at five, I I saw a a gentleman be stabbed uh, uh, with a knife and and it's it's clear as day like it happened yesterday. So then the, the bombing started and uh, the, uh, Iran was attacked by Saddam Hussein and, uh, and Iraq. And um, I remember uh, they used to tell us, turn the radio on before you go to bed at night. Because, I mean, there was no programming. It was silent. But after little after midnight, this one particular night, the siren blared through the radio to wake us up. And, and I remember running out the door, running down the hallway with my family going down the stairs all the way down to this cold basement where everybody else from the building was waiting. And we heard the, the roar of this jet plane overhead and then the whistle of a bomb that had just been dropped. And the, the whistle is getting louder and louder as the bomb is getting closer and closer. 
but because it's high pitched and it's something I hadn't heard before, you can't tell where it is. So your instinct is that bomb is right over my head. It's about to hit us, but it could be a block away. And, and eventually we heard the explosion and the walls shook and the lights flickered and we realized we were still alive. And that is absolutely incredible stress. You can think about the physiology of the body going through with the you know, dilated pupils and the, the pale face where the blood leaves your face and your hands, your hands are cold, your heart's pounding, you're breathing heavy. That's the exact classic response called fight or flight. And that response, that state, uh, sustained over a period of time will absolutely cause illness. Because when your body is in that state of, I'm going to either fight or flee, your uh, body will shut down the unnecessary systems of your body. So it'll shut down digestion and it'll shut down your immune system, which is why people under high stress always have things like chronic sinus infections. They're the ones that get sick much more frequently. And they're also the ones that have indigestion and constipation because their digestive system is just slower because their body wants to be in fight or flight all the time. Now I was, um, I was nine. Just curious if it can be more damaging if you're that young. Just because your, your neural processes are still developing, you're still, can you sort of freeze into a particular trauma state? That's a great point. Yeah, I was, I, I was at um, George Washington University. I was uh, 18 years old and I was living on campus and I had a job off campus. So I'd walk off to the job and come back. Coming back, I was walking past the construction site. It was 5 p.m. It was quitting time and they sounded this um, this, this sound, which, which uh, to, to signify that it's quitting time so the workers could go home, but it was the same pitch as that siren that I had heard when I was, you know, seven years old. And my body went into that same state. I, I suddenly thought I had to go hide. And then I realized, oh no, I'm safe. It's okay. It's just the sound. But yeah, you carry that with you. And earlier in life, I would think you're right. I would think the, the, the more deep and more permanent that can become. Oh, definitely sort of post-traumatic stress can show up both in illnesses. As you said, I never realized that your immune system actually shut shuts down when you're in fight or flight. So it almost mm-hmm. needs to play catch up then to repair itself or to get back to where it was after. Yeah. So, so the opposite of fight or flight is called uh, wine and dine or rest and digest. I like to call it rest and repair because a lot of repair and regeneration of body tissues happens in that state. Uh, that's when you've eaten a large meal and maybe you had a glass of wine and you're, you're sitting on your couch with your feet up on the coffee table and you're lounging and, and you start to doze off. That's the extreme rest and repair state. And that's when your body, now blood leaves your muscles at that point and goes to the uh, intestinal tract and, and your um, hormonal system is conducive to that healing process and everything gets replenished. So your energy levels are replenished and energy is the number one requirement for a proper immune system. Immune system requires energy, which is why cold temperatures, if we're not, you know, if we're not used to it, can cause a decline in our immune system because your body takes all those resources and directs it towards raising your uh, body temperature. And so take us back to you as a kid, right? So um, you, you described very viscerally this um, experience of the bomb. You feel like it's right above your head. And what was your childhood like? Could you go to, were you going to school? What, how did things develop through, through that period? 
Yeah, for the most part, it was, it was um, you know, very calm. I and mean, we lived up north by the Caspian Sea where uh, it was more of a vacation area, lots of recreational facilities. There was this beautiful park outside of our house. We could drive to the beach within uh, 30 minutes. We had a beach house uh, two hours away at another beach. I mean, life was really good. But then after the war, they turned that park in front of our uh, house into a prisoners of war camp. They put walls and, and barbed wire around it, and they would put the Iraqi prisoners there. And every once in a while, now this is, again, right around when I was seven years old, every once in a while, one of the prisoners would escape. And they would be shooting through the streets. So we'd hear gunfire, and we'd have to run inside and hide behind walls. And, you know, being that it was a tropical area and it was a vacation area, I mean, our house was windows all around. So we'd have to find something brick and hide behind it. Um, and then there'd be a, a buzz at the door. Now we had this orchard of orange trees in front of our house and then a gate and, uh, and someone would buzz from the outside and we'd have to answer it and you had to open the door. Now the person buzzing could be the prisoner that just escaped, or it could be the Iranian soldiers that are trying to find him. Either way, if you don't open the door and it's the Iranians, they're going to think you're trying to hide the prisoner they would break the gate down and come in anyway. So you had to open and just pray that it's not somebody bad coming in. Soldiers would pour into our house with guns. They would search everywhere and uh, they would leave. And uh, So that was kind of part of my childhood then. When I was nine, my dad decided he wanted to show me where our ancestors had grown up. So he put me in the car. We drove towards the mountains and we, got an, uh, we rode mules uh, around the side of this mountain until we came to this village where there was no plumbing, no motorized vehicles, no um, power lines. And uh, there was like an in-ground oven where they're baking bread. They're washing their pots and pans in a river. And uh, a woman went into labor over there. And no one knew what to do to help her. Uh, She was having complications. A midwife walked over, knelt down, and listened to her stomach. For just a couple of minutes, she stood up and said, I'm really sorry. There's nothing I can do. She said, there's no heartbeat. and she left. She walked away. And at the age of nine, I'm looking because everyone knew she wasn't going to survive a mule ride down the side of the mountain to get to a hospital. And so people just started to leave one by one, leaving her alone to say goodbye to her husband. And at the age of nine, I was looking at the eyes of this young woman who was just told she's not going to survive. And I had a panic attack, kind of like, you know, the, all the other stressful situations. And my dad kind of held me and carried me down uh, out of there. And, and he calmed me down. And then we Climbed down the mountain, got in our car to drive home. And on the drive home, I said, Dad, I don't want to feel like that ever again. You know, helpless. Like, there's nothing I can do to help. And, and he asked me, what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm going to go be a surgeon. I'll be the best surgeon in the whole world. I carry my medical bag with me everywhere I go. I'm going to save lives because I don't want to feel helpless again. Ten years later, we were living in the United States at the time, and uh, I was uh, at uh, George Washington University. It was my second year, and I went home for Christmas break, and uh, my dad had this big, thick neck brace on. He was uh, completely numb from the shoulders down. Uh, There was nerve pressure to his arms and hands. He couldn't use his hands at all. He couldn't lift his arms to give me a hug, and uh, I spent, you know, six weeks going doctor to doctor with him, trying to figure out what is wrong with my dad? And every doctor we went to said, this is beyond my scope. You have to go to this other doctor. Finally, the neurosurgeon said, we're going to need to operate. We're going to break and remove the bones in the back of his neck, put rods and screws on the sides. We'll fuse his whole neck and he'll never turn his head again. And he may not even regain function of his hands 
but we're hoping he'll have less pain and there's a chance he might die under the knife because he's, he's old. He was 70 at the time. And uh, so we got in a taxi to go home and I'm sitting in the back of the taxi with my dad and my dad is cringing because every bump that taxi hits is sending a bolt of pain through his entire body, especially his arms and hands. I can tell he just doesn't want to live anymore. And I'm feeling the same stress I felt when I was in the village, when I saw the woman slowly die in her husband's arms. And I said, I wouldn't feel this helpless again but now I'm feeling it. Well, what happened is the taxi driver asked my dad, he said, I noticed you're in a lot of pain and I know you asked me to take you home, but there's a chiropractor right down the street this way. If you like, I can take you there. I was a 19 year old know-it-all. I didn't think it was gonna help, but my dad didn't want the surgery. So he said, why don't we try it? Well, we went to this chiropractor's office and six months later, my dad had function of his hands back. He was able to function. He didn't need neck brace anymore. He wasn't on painkillers anymore. He was sleeping through the night, working. No operation. No operation. And so I thought, what a wonderful thing to be able to help people but not do it with drugs and surgery is now my passion. And kind of that tells you where my childhood led me to where I am today. Completely. And I love this story because it's so interesting. The people that are passionate and driven about changing the world in some way, there often is that personal story or that helplessness or that wanting to, to give back in some way. So, so talk us through so, so some of the work that you've done and um, what, what parts of it do you think are connected to stress and that inspired you to write the, to, to publish the book? Well, you know, the biggest thing was everybody who came to me said, Doc, I have too much stress in my life. I need to lower my stress. If I actually had less stress, I'd be healthier. To a degree, I would agree with that. But what happens is when we actually reduce our stress, we become weaker. We actually lower our ability to handle that stress. It's almost like if I were to go to the gym and lift weights, let's say I pick up a hundred kilograms today, but then, you know, um, next week when I go, I only train with 50 and the week after I only train with 10. What, there's going to come a day where I can't do the hundred kilograms anymore. I'll lose that ability. So really reducing stress. There's a, there's a story about Dr. Norman Vincent Peale who wrote the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Okay. Apparently he was in his office one day and a gentleman in, uh, came to him for counseling and said the same thing. I, I want to reduce my stress. And Dr. Peale said, would you like to meet some people who don't have any stress? He said, absolutely. Do they exist? Where do they live? What do they do? I want to be just like them. He said, follow me. So he said he walked out his office, walked down the hallway, walked out the front doors of the church where he worked, walked across the parking lot onto the cemetery, and he said, nobody here has any stress. And literally, I mean, there's been research done where they took stress away from organisms like single-cell uh, amoeba, and when they remove stress from their life, they actually die prematurely. So the conclusion is stress is required by life, and stress sustains life. So what's the deal here? Do we reduce stress? Do we not reduce stress? And my focus has always been, well, then if reducing stress is going to make me weaker and reduce my ability to even handle the stress I have now, then the goal should be to train for it, to get stronger. We get strong so we can handle that stress. We get strong so we can take those hits 
that life sends our way and still keep going forward. We get strong so we can carry that burden that's on our shoulders and not have it knock us down. We get stronger so that we can pursue the goals and the dreams that we want and succeed every single time. I mean, we have dreams, right? Someone has a dream of higher education. They want to go to college. They want to go to graduate school. They want to get a PhD. But doesn't that come with stress? Someone else has a dream of expanding their family. They want more children. Doesn't that come with stress? Someone wants to get married. Isn't marriage stressful? You know, everything that's good in life will come with some stress. That's why I say the number one reason people fail to achieve their goals, their dreams, their desires, or even to pursue them is because they don't have the ability to take on the stress that's going to come with that. Now, what about the argument for balance, work-life balance? You know, yes. branded around, and it's like you work too much, or like, are there different types of stress? So, so say um, pumping iron at the gym might be a great way to stress your muscles. You do reps, you take a breather, you you repair, like all that sort of stuff. And you know, being in a war zone might be seen as a, a, a negative type of stress, or being in a toxic work environment with a bully, like. How would you view the difference of those things? Uh, absolutely great question. The founder, the, the, the gentleman, the doctor who coined the word stress was uh, Hans Selye. And he actually said there's, there's two different things. There's distress, which is the negative that you're talking about. And there's eustress, which is the positive type of stress, which what you're talking about. But later on, it was almost like, yeah, but but even the good stress can become bad, and the bad can become good. So so an example could be this. Let's say um, I tell my children that tomorrow we're going to Disneyland, and uh, and they get really really excited, and then so so that you would say is is a positive stress, right? But they can't sleep at night because they're too exhausted, too, too excited, and they stay awake through the night, and then now their cortisol levels are you know, off and, and they didn't get the sleep that they needed. And then they're exhausted during the day when we're at Disney World or Disneyland. Uh, so, so it can turn to one and the other. I think there absolutely should be a balance. I believe that if, if my, my muscles aren't strong enough to lift a uh, hundred kilograms, I shouldn't even attempt it or a hundred, uh, you know, hundred pounds or whatever. I shouldn't even attempt it. I should attempt something that's just a little bit above my maximum so that I can adapt. So the process is called adaptation. We adapt to stress as long as it's not too much to make us sick. That load, um, there's a concept called, you've heard of homeostasis. Yeah. And homeostasis refers to balance in the body where everything's at balance. However, homeostasis in, in reality doesn't exist unless with, through time. Unless we take a snapshot, we, we, we freeze time and say this body's in homeostasis. But throughout time, we should really call it homeodynamics because it's an ebb and flow. There's stress, there's a response, there's adaptation, and then there's stress, there's a response, there's adaptation. And everything goes through cycles in the body. You have your circadian rhythm, your heart rhythm, your breathing rhythm, uh, your hormonal cycles, and everything goes through these cycles. So there's no stasis. Stasis means a standstill. It's dynamic. And so the load that's on the body is called allostasis. Allostasis means like a balloon that has air in it. You squeeze it with pressure and it responds by putting pressure back. If you put too much allostatic load, it will pop. Same with you and I. We'll break down. We'll pop. So we have to allow time for that adaptation. We allow a little bit of stress into our life. We work to adapt to it. 
then we add more stress. You won't jump from high school to graduate school. You'll go to college first and then you go to grads. But I guess the reality is that sometimes we don't have a choice, right? Some, sometimes yeah. we're, maybe we chose to go to grad school and we're having that kind of stress and then our mother dies or yeah. child gets sick or, or like an outside stress occurs to add to that, right? And, yeah. and so there's just this understanding and knowledge that we need to understand our bodies and our minds and when it's switching or when we need different things. Yes. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, you, if you live long enough, you'll be faked with something. Yes. It's part of life. Something bad, I, I hate to say it like this, but something bad's going to happen. There, there was an expert, and I can't remember his name. He said, you're, you're either coming out of a terrible situation or you're about to go into a terrible situation or you're in the middle of a terrible situation. But, but other than that, there's, there, there's nothing else. And so um, my philosophy in this, and this is just a personal philosophy here, is, is we need to train. We need to constantly be getting, working on getting stronger so that when something like that happens, physiologically, psychologically, we are more um, equipped to handle it properly. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the proverbial mom. The house catches on fire, right? And mom flies out of bed and grabs the kids. Now she can pick up all three of them at the same time. She has superhuman strength, right? Because she's in fight or flight. Yeah. Picks up all the kids and runs them out of the house, runs back in and gets the, the, the dog and the cat and takes them out of the house, runs back in, gets the photo albums to right. save those, you know, the memories, and runs out of the house. And then the, the um, firemen show up to, to put out the fire. And she notices, she realizes everybody in her family is safe and everything's going to be okay. And they're putting out the fire. All of a sudden she collapses yeah. because it caught up to her, you know, now, um, that's, uh, that's, uh, we call that general adaptation potential. It's her ability to adapt to a stressful situation. And in that sense, the, so if there's a gap, GAP, general adaptation potential. If your stress is between these two levels, you're going to handle it just fine. If it goes above that, that's when you get sick or that's when you collapse. That's when you break down mentally, emotionally, physically, some physiologically, something will go wrong. So the goal is to widen the gap so that your ability to handle that stress is, is higher. Did I answer your question? Yeah, well, I think so. Um, I'm, I'm hearing very much there's a mindset shift that we can do because I think what happens is people feel stress, especially like you said, marriage or children, like these milestones that you think Disney, you achieve them, then you're like, oh, it's bliss happily ever after. And then it's stressful and you're like, what's wrong with the situation? When actually this mindset shift is going, where's the next challenge? I expect that there will be stress in my life. And I'm going to utilize it to train myself to handle the next thing and be reaching my potential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the boxer Muhammad Ali said the fight is won or lost away from witnesses behind the lines in the gym out there on the road long before I dance under the light. So he's talking about the training is what makes him win, win the fight. I met a gentleman. Uh, he was teaching a, a seminar that I attended, um, Dr. Russell Reese. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon, so he was one of the pioneers in open heart surgery where they actually put the body in, in, in a frozen state. They lower the temperature. They drain the blood. They remove the heart, operate on it, put the heart back in, raise the temperature, and jumpstart the heart. And these are, that's the kind of surgery he does. And he said, uh, 
um, if you live long enough, there's going to be some, some disaster in your life. And how you come out of that disaster is how you've been living your life up to that moment. So you don't know what challenge you're going to be faced. So his point was, it, I can be the greatest surgeon, but what I do doesn't determine whether the patient survives. It's what kind of lifestyle they've been living up to that moment that's going to determine whether they survive. And he said, if you tell me how someone's been living physically, psychologically, and chemically, how they've been living up to that moment, I can tell you and predict for you if they're going to walk out of that hospital in 10 days, or they're going to stay in the hospital six months, or this is someone who may never walk out. What do you think are the predictors? The predictors would have to be uh, having that balance between a uh, good relationship in your life, something that's secure and stable. Having time to have interpersonal connections, like you mentioned earlier, when it's not just behind the screen, but they're able to connect and hug and hold hands or whatever it might be. Uh, spending time outdoors, we do less and less of that fresh air. Um, barefoot on the grass or barefoot on the sand. You, your body absorbs minerals through the ground, through your feet. And we don't do that anymore. We rarely take our shoes off. Um, uh, being by water, uh, where running water has ionized air that you breathe in and it has, has anti-cancer properties. There's so many, how we're sleeping. If someone's not sleeping enough, someone has interrupted sleep, someone does shift work where they're in a factory and they have to work from midnight to 6 a.m. versus from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you know, those are people that are, in fact, uh, uh, I believe the C Center for Disease Control reclassified shift work as a carcinogen equivalent to smoking because you, you're much more susceptible to getting cancer if you don't sleep at the right times. So all of those are predictors. And um, there's so many, I'm so interested in this. We could go so many different directions. When it, it comes to you with, I imagine, a back or a spinal issue for uh, the chiropractic uh, support, how do you know, and they say maybe I've got stress in my life, how do you treat them? I know that's a general question, but obviously your job in that role as a doctor is, is from that physical perspective. Do you try and educate on the stress side or how do you handle that? Well, you know, they say that the, the way an ant will eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So we certainly don't want to overwhelm them with, with a lot of information up front. But I, um, most of my patients have been with me for years. And doesn't mean I see them regularly. I, I see them maybe a few times a year. They'll pop in, but, but they're not coming in anymore because they're sick. They're coming in because they're healthy. They want to stay that way. So we run tests and check their nervous system. So to answer the question, at the very beginning when they're coming in, no matter what their problem is, my focus is, is their brain communicating with their body properly? So we run certain tests. There's a, a, um, a thermal scan can show heat patterns around their spine that'll tell us if they're autonomic nerves. These are nerves that control organs, glands, and blood vessels. So autonomic means automatic, automatically controlled digestion, things like that. We'll find out if those nerves are working properly. We'll do a surface electromyogram to measure and see if uh, their musculoskeletal system is responding properly. At rest, your muscles shouldn't be tighter on the right compared to the left or vice versa. So we'll digitally map that and measure that. We'll look at their range of motion to see if they're able to move different directions properly. But then we'll have them shut their eyes and do certain tests like balance tests to see if their brain is receiving information from the body properly. Quite often people have ADD or ADHD. It's because there's something preventing from information to hit the brain at the right 
great. So for example, the field you're in, that I'm sure this is something that'll interest you is, is you, you know, a lot of times people with hyperactive disorder, that when they sit, they have to tap their foot all the time. They have to swing their knee all the time. They can't sit still. They, but if you tell them to stand in the back of the classroom and run back and forth, they'll pay attention. They can hear. Why? Because it increases input. We call that afferent input, information input to the brain. When the brain is receiving enough information from the body, it can calm down and pay attention. Sometimes it's because there's a blockage, a misalignment at the top of the spine, putting pressure on the brainstem, slowing that information down. You know those tops that children spin on a table? The faster it spins, the more steady it is. When it slows down, it wobbles. Well, these people are not, these children are not hyperactive, they're hypoactive. That's why they need to increase activity to stimulate the brain more. When we remove that block, now, because you and I, when we're sitting here, our knee is still talking to our brain and it's telling our brain if the knee is bent or straight, we don't have to look at it, we just know. Every joint in your body, every part of your body is constantly sending information to the brain. If that gets blocked, now your brain says, hey, why don't you move that knee so I can see where it is? And you'll have this urge to move it all the time. Those are people who have to be hyperactive. So what we look at when that first new patient comes into our door is the nervous system. X-rays are another one. Something's blocking that nervous system. I don't know where it is. Their pain might be in their low back, but the block could be up here. So we take x-rays, we draw lines, we make measurements, we'll find out where those misalignments are. If it correlates to where those nerves are interfered with on their scans, we know exactly what adjustments to give, at what amplitude, and in what direction. So we can be very, very specific in removing the pressure from the spinal cord, restoring that connection between the brain and the body. And the final test we do is called a heart rate variability. You might have heard about this before. Heart rate variability is a measure of the space between your heartbeats, and it can tell me if your body is at rest, is it stuck in fight or flight? or is it stuck in rest and repair, or is it balanced? We can also tell you exactly whether you're equipped to handle stress in your life. So on the graph, if you're, if, if you're down here and you're supposed to be up here, that means we need to improve you this much to help you be able to handle the stress in your life. And then we can come up with plans. I call it the simple seven, which is playing music, uh, eating properly, uh, um, sleeping properly, exercising properly, using visualization techniques and so on to improve your adaptability to stress. So little by little, we work on removing the interferences from their life physically, chemically, and psychologically, uh, but not to the extent of what you do, but, but from a physical standpoint. So I know that exercise is going to help their psychological state. Uh, you know, I know that visualization will help there. So these are standardized things, but there are people will send to people like you to actually the experts to, to really work up here because unless that's better, like you said earlier, the rest of it will never improve. But, but I, I love, I mean, it's fascinating. I had no idea that chiropractorness or however you call it was that, mm -hmm. uh, complex and in depth, you just sort of think back pain, you see them like move your back in certain ways or, uh, but it, but it's so much. Uh, more than that. Um, what are your thoughts on holistic health? We do not have time to go into that totally. But like I've been in, so say in the last four months, I've been um, experiencing signs of stress, right? Like heart palpitations, not sleeping as well. Uh, psoriasis, I get psoriasis, skin condition, breakout, things like that. And that's very much because I probably jumped a step as far as the amount of stress training I could do in working for myself and didn't do as many of those seven things and, and those predictors as, as, as you've been talking. So I have that 
awareness around it. Um, but equally, I've done things like sound therapy, gong bath. I've done the walking barefoot, the tr- hugging trees. I mean, really, it's just nature, right? Touching things. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, yoga and connection and uh, Reiki and, you know, things like that that have to do with energy. And I've seen a shaman and, you know, more from a, not from a like fix me, but more from a curiosity, like, oh, there's all this stuff out there that has some science backing to some of it now. Um, what are your thoughts on that just as far as creating balance and health? I'm a big fan of holistic care. We kind of joke around. We say holistic care is for people who have a whole list of problems. Holistic. Hello. <laughs> there you go. So now, um, you know, what, um, the, the fact is this, and, and like you said, we don't have a whole lot of time to get into the details of it, but the secret to preventing heart disease is the same secret to preventing cancer, and it's the same secret to preventing autoimmune issues, such as psoriasis. Psoriasis is your body attacking itself and, uh, and, and, and not, not being able to process normal things in a normal fashion. It's an immune system issue. That's why they'll put um, people with psoriasis on drugs like methotrexate, which is technically chemotherapy, which blocks cell division in cells that divide quickly, like hair, like skin. And that seems to clear it up in 50% of people. Some of the other uh, drugs used for it uh, are, are immune suppressant. They just really stop the immune system so it can't attack things. But then that lowers your ability to fight other infections and so on. But really, what you're doing is what you got to be doing, is making sure you're getting quality. I always say how you eat is more important than what you eat. And how you sleep is more important than how long you sleep. Wait, so you wait, can have four. Slow down. What do you mean by how you eat rather than what you eat? So you know, uh, I live on the east coast of the United States, and and this is a higher stress area than the west coast of the United States, and both are much higher stress areas than the Midwest. And so typically, this is how people I know eat lunch. They're in their car. They're driving, they're eating, they're yelling at the traffic because they're late for an appointment. They're also on the phone talking to a business associate. Now, all of those things, except for the eating, are fight or flight. So when your body is in a state of fight or flight, any food you put in your mouth will be processed the wrong way. You can eat really healthy organic vegetables and and lean meats or whatever it might be, and your body will treat it like it's poison. It'll turn it into fat and it'll put that fat around your organs. It'll, be, it'll turn into visceral fat and it will not get processed properly. And you will have indigestion and you'll have constipation and you'll have heartburn. But now, let's say you're eating food that's not all that healthy for you. Uh, however, you sit down at your desk if you're at work and you, you stop work. You play a little bit of classical music. And you say a prayer of gratitude over your food, saying, I'm grateful for this time and this food. And you eat. And you don't rush and you don't eat fast. All of a sudden, you're eating in a state where your body is ready to receive that food. It'll be healthier for you. This is what the whole French paradox is about. They say the French are immune to heart disease for for the reason that they take two hours to eat lunch. Where in the States, we take 15 minutes to eat lunch. Yeah. And you're on the go and you're multitasking. And yeah, exactly. exactly. Where I'm from, we take, a, we take a nap after lunch. Right. <laughs> all the stores, the shopping malls, all shut down from noon to 4 p.m. because the owner has to go home, 
sit down and eat lunch. We used to actually change into our pajamas before we ate lunch. So we'd be more comfortable and we'd be ready for our nap. And then we'd take a nap and then we'd go back to work in the afternoon. So, so nice. Um, and yeah, obviously the holistic health, we could go down that rabbit hole. But I think in conclusion, all of these things matter. Slowing down a little bit, connecting with each other and, uh, and reframing how we, we view stress. Um, what, what about for you? Um, when you were 18, you, you described a situation that sounded like post-traumatic stress disorder or, or at least heightened sense, sensory awareness to, to noise. Um, how has that played out for you? Does anything still show up from the trauma you experienced? That's a good question. So the, the, I do a breathing technique uh, that, that helps me uh, and, and um, eliminates, uh, re- removes me from that fight or flight state. So the way I, I teach this is uh, if right now where, where you're sitting, if the walls started to shake and you realized you're in an earthquake, the first thing you would do is, and let me ask you, would you breathe a sigh of relief or would you gasp for air? Yeah, you would do a hard inhale. Something bad's about to happen. That's the sign of fight or flight. Now, the average normal person who is adaptive to stress, meaning they're equipped to handle general everyday average stress, their breathing ratio tends to be a one to two ratio, meaning inhale is, is, is at one unit of time and exhale is two units of time. So if it takes you two seconds to inhale, it would take you four seconds to exhale. That's when your body is in a rest and repair state. Uh, now, when we get stressed, that ratio becomes a one-to-one ratio. One unit of time to inhale, one to exhale. And in fact, sometimes you don't even exhale. You hold your breath. Yeah. So fight or flight. To force the body to leave fight or flight and go into rest and repair means you have to intentionally exhale twice as long as inhale. So you slow the breathing and you count. So you count to seven when you inhale. If you want, you can count to five, whatever. I do seven and I make sure my exhale takes 14 twice as long as it takes me to inhale. A lot of times, you know, insomnia is a big thing. And, and most people say, I just can't shut off my mind. The same thoughts keep circling around my head over and over and over. Well, you're in fight or flight. That's why you can't fall asleep. If I was being chased by a pack of hungry wolves, could I stop and take a nap? My body wouldn't let me. I'd be too scared. It's the same thing. So what I do is I start doing that breathing. 10 of those breaths, seven in, 14 out, seven in, 14 out, breathe slow. Make sure it's exactly twice as long or even longer on the exhale. Within five to seven breaths, you'll be out. You'll be asleep. You won't, you won't remember number 10. And to fully oxygenate the body, that ratio is four to one. So you want to increase oxygen saturation in your body. When air comes in, only the outside of that pocket of air that's in the alveoli gets the oxygen used. The middle of it doesn't; it still has the oxygen. That's why mouth-to-mouth breathing works because when you exhale, a lot of that exhale is still oxygen. But if you hold that air in your lungs four times as long as it took you to breathe in, you get all the oxygen or most of it. So now during the day when I want to do my breathing exercise, I do seven in, hold for a count of 28, Exhale for 14, 7, 28, 14. Surely you built up to that because that's quite. Yeah, you build up or you count faster or you can just do four. Four times four is 16, so you can do four, 16, and eight. It's the ratio of time that's important. And when you do that, you fully oxygenate the body and you remove the fight or flight. 
and the body can repair, regenerate. You can think more clearly. When someone's in fight or flight, because cortisol levels go up, your actual neocortex shuts down and blood goes to the limbic system, the, the, the more uh, primitive part of your uh, brain, and you're ready to fight or flight. That's why people have poor memory. People stay in uh, fight or flight long term. They don't just have the dry eyes, dry mouth, dry skin, high blood pressure, fast heart rate, high cholesterol. They, they lose their ability to process sugar, and they lose their ability to remember things. So memory starts to decline. Some, there are experts right now, and I think this will be a fact in about 10 years, is that dementia is going to be called type 3 diabetes. Really? It's, it's, a, it's a different way of processing sugar. I'm sorry? It's lifestyle related. It is. Absolutely. Um, and I imagine, and I teach a bit of this when I, I do leadership training around mental health at work and things like that and talk about fire or flight um, uh, quite a bit and talk about how the digital age, you know, our constant notifications and, and sort of things and noises and whatever is putting us, correct me if I'm wrong, in a constant state of fight or flight. Like you get your, your news uh, feed, right? And, and there's something on the other side of the world and, and you do this like, we're, you know, because this... What, in the book I'm reading, like this is one of the safest times to be alive, actually, statistically, if we compare it to, to, to wars and carnage and all the stuff that's been going on in history. But yet we're more stressed, yet the suicide rate has gone up. And, and we're, we're just in a constant state of fight or flight. Like, do you need, think we need, this sounds like a dumb question, but do you think we need a, a sort of breaks from our digital thing that makes our life look easier? I agree with you 100%. I, I don't watch the news. Um, I don't. I just don't. I have no idea what the stock market is doing, what, what Japan is doing, what China is doing. I just don't know. Now, I, I, I keep up to date because I see a lot of patients on a daily basis and everyone updates me. They say, did you hear about this or that? And so they tell me. But, but for the most part, now, uh, some, some, some of us, you know, you're in the media much more than I am. And, and you, you know, you need to be on top of certain things. Try to watch the news sometime midday or earlier in the day. Um, your cortisol level should be at the highest when you wake up first thing in the morning because it builds up through the night. And then during the day, it needs to go down and flatline near the bottom. And that's when you can fall asleep. If cortisol stays up, you can't fall asleep. So. Um, in the morning, your cortisol is already high. So you watching the news in the morning is not so bad. Doing intense exercise in the morning is not so bad. But, but if you go for a long run um, right before you go to sleep at night, that may cause a spike in cortisol and keep you from being able to fall asleep. So if you have to watch the news, try to do it earlier in the day and then shut it out, uh, especially a couple hours before you go to sleep. Don't watch the news anymore. Don't watch the late night news. Yeah, and they, then there's the whole sleep hygiene and, you know, I, I love your breathing exercise and going back to reading a book or connecting with people, just creating conscious choices around balance and how we live rather than being in this constant reactive state. Sounds like it will save lives, right? I hope so. I hope so. And certainly, you know, um, and this is more your field, but putting yourself in a state that is, that is calm, you know, remembering a memory you love for 60 seconds in the middle of the day, once a day. I call that 60-second vacation. Relive your favorite moment your, uh, of your favorite vacation and go back to that state, whether it's in the mountains or in the, on the beach. Try to remember the details and try to experience it. And, and you come back to work, you'll feel like you actually left and you're back. And you can think clearly and you're out of that fight or flight as well. 
I love that. There's so much that is in our control when it, when it comes to this. Uh, Dr. Amir, thank you so much for uh, your time. I feel like we could go all day, but we'll, we'll keep it at this for now. If people are interested in your, in your book or to hear more about you, where can they find you? Well, the book is on, uh, on Amazon. It, it, it looks like this. It's called The Stress-Proof Life and Amazon.com. Uh, um, you can search for it. My website is midatlanticclinic.com. And um, through that, we'll send out some alerts and so on. And um, we'll do some, some uh, you know, uh, videos that we'll put on the website itself that you can take advantage of. And absolutely, it was a pleasure speaking with you. You're so great to talk to. You're such a great um, uh, way of asking questions and, and uh, keeping, keeping the conversation going. I, I feel like it was just a second. So thank you so much for being so great. Appreciate that so much. I will be getting the book and uh, adding it into the show notes for the listeners. Thanks again. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.